Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right. Happy Friday, everybody. We are still working our way through book one of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Prehistoric Masonry, Chapter 26, Freemasonry and the Ancient Mysteries. This theory credits the origin of Freemasonry as a secret society to the pagan mysteries of the ancient world. The claim so made is that we get the most important part of our ritual and the legend of the third degree from the initiation practiced in these very early religious organizations and their ceremonies. Therefore, we are the more inclined to connect this theory with the legend of the temple origin of the institution because we can link the initiation in the mysteries with that of Freemasonry by supposing that the one was in some way built on the other at the time of the erection of the temple and of the intimate union of the Jewish and Tyrian workmen. Before we can properly estimate the theory which unites Freemasonry with the pagan mysteries, we must make ourselves acquainted with the nature and the design as well as with something of the history of those mystical societies. There existed two systems of worship, a public and a private one. Among all the nations of the old world where the coming of refinement had given a cultured tone to the rising sentiments of religion. Each of the pagan gods, says Warburton, had, besides the public and open, a secret worship paid unto him, to which none were admitted but those who had been selected by preparatory ceremonies called initiation. This secret worship was called the Mysteries. That public worship of the common people, distinct and separate from the one above mentioned by Warburton, was founded on the false and unreasonable pagan religions whose many gods and goddesses were wicked by nature and vicious in conduct. Virtue could not be learned from their example. Their weekly human acts furnished rather excuses for vice than the teaching of morals. In the Eunuchus of Tyranny, when Kara is planning the seduction of the virgin Pamphila, he refers to the similar act of Jupiter, who in a shower of gold had corrupted Danae. And he exclaims, If a god, who by this thunder shakes the whole universe, could commit this crime, shall not I, a mere mortal, do so also? Plautus, Euripides, and other Greek and Roman dramatists and poets repeatedly used the same argument in defense of views of their heroes. That mankind could be excused because the gods and goddesses were no better became a settled principle of the ancient religion. The vicious example of the gods thus became a wall across the way of a life of purity and holiness. Teaching the faith of a future life of rewards or punishments was no part of the popular religious instruction. The poets, it is true, indulged in romantic tales of an Elysium and a Tartarus, the ancient heaven and hell, but their views were uncertain and unsatisfactory, as to any specific doctrine of immortality. These impressions of the old writers are given in the saying of Ovid that of the four elements which constituted the human organization, the earth covers the flesh, the shade flits around the tomb, the spirit seeks the stars. Thus did the poet express the prevailing idea that the composite man returned after death to the various elements of which he had been in the first place made up. 
In such a dim and shadowy belief, there was no hope for eternal life, no lasting comfort at death. Alger, to whom the world is in debt for a thorough study of the popular beliefs of all nations, ancient and modern, on the subject of the future life, has, after a full and critical examination of the question, come to the following conclusion. To the ancient Greek in general, death was a sad doom. When he lost a friend, he sighed a melancholy farewell after him to the faded shore of ghosts. Summoned himself, he departed with a lingering look at the sun and a tearful adieu to the bright day. And the green earth. To the Roman, death was a grim reality. To meet it himself, he girded up his loins with artificial firmness. But at its ravages amongst his friends, he wailed in anguish abandonment. To his dying vision there was indeed a future, but shapes of distrust and shadow stood upon its disconsolate borders. And when the prospect had no horror, he still shrank from the poppied gloom. As each nation advanced in refinement and intellectual culture, the priests, the poets, and the philosophers aspired to a higher thought. They cherished the longing for and taught the consoling doctrine of an immortality, one not to be spent in shadowy and idle forms of existence, but passed in everlasting enjoyment to compensate for the ills of life. The necessary result of the growth of such pure and elevated notions must have been a contempt and an opposition to the absurd polytheism, the worship of many gods. But as this was the popular religion, it was readily seen that any open attempt to overthrow it or to publicly advance opinions against it would be ventures full of danger. Whenever any religion, whether true or false, becomes the religion of a people, whoever opposes it or ridicules it or seeks to upset it is sure to be accused by popular zeal and to be punished by popular bigotry. Socrates was doomed to drink from the poisoned bowl on the charge that he taught the Athenian youth to worship not the gods approved and accepted for that purpose by the state, but new and generally unknown deities. Jesus was nailed to the cross because he taught a faith which, however pure, was new and evil to the old religion of his Jewish countrymen. New religious truths among the pagan peoples were therefore hidden from common inspection and taught only in secret societies. Admission to these was obtained only through the tests of a painful initiation, and the doctrines were further concealed under the veil of symbols whose true meaning the initiated only could understand. The truth, says Clemens of Alexandria, was taught involved in enigmas, symbols, allegories, metaphors, and tropes and figures. Such secret societies in which the principles of a new and purer knowledge of religion was taught have received in history the name of the Mysteries. Each country had its mysteries, and these were peculiar to itself. In Egypt, there were those of Osiris and Isis. In Samothrace, those of the Kabiri. In Greece, they celebrated at Eleusis, near Athens, the mysteries of Demeter. In Syria, of Adonis. In Phoenicia, of Dionysus. And in Persia, those of Mithras, which were the last to perish after the advent of Christianity and the overthrow of polytheism, the belief in many gods and goddesses. These mysteries, although they differed in name and in some of the details of initiation, were essentially alike in general form and design. Their end as well as nature, says Warburton, was the same in all, to teach the doctrine of a future state. Alger says, The implications of the indirect evidence, the leanings and guidings of all the incidental clues now left us as to the real aim and purport of the mysteries, combined to assure us that their chief teaching was a doctrine of a future life in which there should be rewards and punishments. Thomas Taylor, the Platonist, then whom no better modern authority on this subject should be cited, says that the initiated were instructed in the doctrine of a state of future rewards and punishments, and that the greater mysteries, obscurely intimated by mystic and splendid visions, the felicity of the soul both here and hereafter, 
when purified from the defilements of the material nature and constantly elevated to the realities of intellectual vision. All the ancient writers who were living about the same time with these associations and must have been familiar with their character agree in the opinion that their design was to teach the doctrine of a future life of rewards and punishments. Pindar, the Greek poet, who lived from 522 to 443 years before Christ, says, Happy the man who descends beneath the hollow earth, having beheld these mysteries. He knows the end, he knows the divine origin of life. Sophocles, the tragic poet of Athens, living from 495 to 406 years before Christ, says that there are thrice happy who descend to the shades below after having beheld these rites, for they alone have life in Hades, while all others suffer there every kind of evil. And lastly, Isocrates, one of the ten great orders of Athens who lived in the period from 436 to 338 years before Christ, declares that those who have been initiated in the mysteries of Ceres entertain better hopes both as to the end of life and the whole of futurity. Thus, from all authorities, it is evident that the great end and design of the initiation into these mysteries was to teach the aspirant the doctrine of a future life, not that aimless, uncertain, and shadowy one outlined by the poets and doubtfully consented to by the people, but that pure and rational state of immortal existence in which the soul is purified from the dross of the body and elevated to eternal life. It was, in short, much the same in its spirit as the Christian and Masonic doctrine of the resurrection. This lesson was taught in the mysteries in a peculiar form. This method of presenting the instruction has in fact given rise to the theory we are now considering that they were the first and original source of speculative Freemasonry. They were all dramatic in their ceremonies. Each one exhibited in a series of staged and scenic representations the adventures of some god or hero, the attacks upon him by his enemies, his death at their hands, his descent into Hades or the grave, and his final return to renewed life as immortal, or his elevation as a god. The only important difference between these various mysteries was that there was to each one a distinct and peculiar god or hero whose death and resurrection, or apotheosis, was the subject of the drama, and gave to its scenes the changes which were dependent on the adventures of him who was its main feature. Thus, in Samothrace, where the mysteries of the Kabiri were celebrated, it was Attis, the lover of Sibel, who was slain and restored. In Egypt, it was Osiris, whose death and resurrection were represented. In Greece, it was Dionysus. And in Persia, Mithras. In all of these ceremonies and tragedies, the material points of a plot and the religious design of the sacred drama were the same. The dramatic form and the scenic representation of the allegory were everywhere preserved. This dramatic form of the initiatory rites and the mysteries, this acted allegory in which the doctrine of the resurrection was shadowed forth by the visible representation of some imagined event, was, as the learned Dr. Dollinger has justly observed, eminently calculated to take a powerful hold on the imagination and the heart, and to excite in the spectators alternately conflicting sentiments of terror and calmness, of sorrow and fear and hope. The mysteries were a part of the doings of a secret society whose members were separated from the rest of the people by a ceremony of initiation. There resulted from this form of organization, as a necessary means of defense and of isolation, a solemn obligation of secrecy, with severe penalties for its violation, and certain modes of recognition known only to those who had been instructed in them. There was what might be called a progressive order of degrees, for the neophyte, the novice, or candidate was not at once upon his initiation invested with the knowledge of the deepest secrets of the religious system. Thus the mysteries were divided into two classes, called the lesser and the greater mysteries, 
In addition to these, there was a preliminary ceremony, which was only a beginning or introduction to the mysteries proper. Thus, there was in the process of reception a system of three steps, which those who are fond of tracing analogies or comparisons between the ancient and modern initiations are led to call degrees. A brief review of these three steps of progress in the mysteries will give the reader a very definite idea of the nature of this ancient system in which so many writers have thought that they had found the cradle of modern Freemasonry. Such a general survey of the situation will enable him to appreciate at their just value the similarities which these writers have found, as they suppose, between the two systems. The first step was called the lustration, or purification by water. When the neophyte or candidate was ready to be received into any of the ancient mysteries, he was taken into the temple or other place set apart for the ceremony of initiation. There he had to undergo a thorough cleansing of the body by water. This was the preparation for the reception into the lesser mysteries, and it was symbolic of that purification of the heart that was absolutely necessary to prepare the aspirant for admission to a knowledge and a share in the sacred lessons which were afterwards to be given him. Many have sought and still seek to find in this preparation ceremony an analogy or likeness to the first degree of Freemasonry. Such an analogy certainly exists, as we will be seen, But the theory that the apprentice's degree was suggested by and taken from the ceremony of lustration in the mysteries is wholly out of the question. The ceremony was not even peculiar to the mysteries. An ablution, lustration, or cleansing by water, as a religious rite, was practiced among all the ancient nations. More especially was it observed among the Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans. With the Hebrews, the lustration was the first ceremony to every act of expiation, the sacrifice offered by the repentant, the sin offering. Hence, the Jewish prophets continually refer to the ablution of the body with water as a symbol of the purification of the heart. Among the Greeks, lustration was always connected with their sacrifices. It consisted in the sprinkling of water by means of an olive or a laurel branch. The ceremony was more common with the Romans than the Greeks. Used not only as a sign or sacrifice showing repentance for crime, the Romans employed the ceremony to secure the blessing of the gods. Thus, fields were lustrated before the corn was put into the ground colonies when they were first established, and armies before they proceeded to battle. At the end of every fifth year, the whole people were thus purified by a general lustration. Everywhere, the rite was connected with the performance of sacrifice and with the idea of a moral purification, the washing away of evil. The next step in the ceremonies of the ancient mysteries was called the initiation. Here, the dramatic allegory was performed, and the myth, or imagined history, developed on which the peculiar mystery was founded. The neophyte, or initiate, personally took part in the supposed events of the life, the sufferings, and the death of the god or hero to whom the mystery was dedicated, or he had them brought into a very realistic drama before him. These ceremonies formed a symbolic instruction in the initia, the beginnings, of the religious system which it was the object of the mysteries to teach. The ceremonies of initiation were performed partly in the lesser, but more especially and more fully in the greater mysteries, of which they were the first part and where only the allegory of death was shown. The lesser mysteries were introductory to the greater and have been supposed by the theorists who maintain the connection between the mysteries and Freemasonry to be similar to the Fellowcraft's degree of the latter institution. There may be some ground for this comparison in a rather inexact way, Although the lesser mysteries were to some extent public, yet as they were, as Clemens of Alexandria says, a certain groundwork of instruction and preparation for the things that were to follow, they might perhaps be considered as being akin to the fellowcraft's degree. The third and last of the progressive steps or grades in the mysteries was perfection. 
That was the main object of the system. It was also called the autopsy, from a Greek word which means seen with one's own eyes. It was the complete and finished communication to the neophyte of the great secret of the mysteries, the secret for the preservation of which the system of initiation had been invented, and which during the whole course of that initiation had been symbolically shadowed forth. Teaching and impressing this secret was in fact the explanation of the secret doctrine for which the mysteries in every country had been instituted, and the ceremony containing it was performed in the most sacred and private place of the temple, or place of initiation. As the autopsy or perfection of the mysteries concluded the whole system, the maintainers of the doctrine that Freemasonry finds its origin in the mysteries have compared this last step in the ancient initiation to the master's degree. But the analogy or likeness between the two as a summing up of the secret doctrine is less to be seen in the third degree as it now exists than it is before the separation from it of the royal arch. Accepting, however, the master's degree as it was constituted in the earlier part of the 18th century, the comparisons between that and the last stage of the mysteries are certainly very interesting, although not sufficient to prove the origin of the modern from the ancient systems. But of this more can be said when that development of degrees is studied in this work. This view of the organization of the pagan mysteries would not be complete without some reference to the dramatized allegory which formed so important a part of the ceremony of initiation, and in connection with which the relation to Freemasonry has been most earnestly urged. Already has it been said that the mysteries were originally invented for the purpose of teaching two great religious truths which were unknown to, or at least not recognized, in the popular faith. These were the unity of God and the immortality of the soul. The former, although illustrated at every point by expressed symbols, such for instance as the all-seeing eye, the eye of the universe, and the image of the deity, was not put in the form of a drama or allegory, but taught as an abstract doctrine at the time of the autopsy or the close of the grade of perfection. The other truth, the dogma of a future life, and of a resurrection from death to immortality, was presented to the candidate by an allegory. This was dramatized in much the same way in each of the mysteries, although of course in each nation the person and the events which made up the allegory were different. The interpretation was, however, always the same. Egypt was the first country of antiquity to receive the germs of civilization, and there the first mysteries are supposed to have been invented. Although the Eleusinian mysteries, which were introduced into Greece long after the invention of the Osiriac in Egypt, were more popular among the ancients, yet the Egyptian initiation exhibits more purely and more expressively the symbolic idea which was to be developed in the explaining of its allegory. We shall therefore select the Osiriac, the most important of the Egyptian mysteries, as the exemplar from which an idea may be obtained of the character of all the other mysteries of paganism. The writers of antiquity, such as Plutarch, Diodorus Siculus, and Heroditus, state that the Egyptian mysteries of Osiris, Isis, and Horus were the model of all the other systems of initiation that were afterwards established among the various peoples of the Old World. Indeed, the ancients held that Demeter of the Greeks was identical with the Isis of the Egyptians, and Dionysus with Osiris. The adventures credited to these characters were certainly very similar. The place of Osiris in Egyptian history is unknown to us. The fragments of Sanconiathon speak of Osiris, the brother of Chana, or Canaan, in the lists of Manetho. He is made the fifth king during the governing period of the demigods, being conjoined with Isis. But as the four preceding kings are named as Hephaestus, Helios, Agathodomon, and Kronos, the whole is evidently a mere mythological fable, and we have as far to seek as ever. 
Herodotus is not more satisfactory, for he says that Osiris and Isis were two great deities of the Egyptians. Banier, however, in his mythology, thinks he was the same as Mizraim, the son of Ham and grandson of Noah. Bishop Cumberland concurs in this and adds that Ham was the first king of Egypt, that Osiris was a title taken by him, signifying prince, and that Isis was simply Aisha, his wife. Lastly, Diodorus Siculus says that he was Menes, the first king of Egypt. Some later writers have sought to identify Osiris and Isis with the Iswara and Isi of India. There is certainly a great deal of probability, if we may judge from the history of words, in this last guess. Osiris had the reputation among the ancients of being present everywhere. This fact is best shown in some witty verses of Ausonius, wherein it is said that in Greece, at Eleusis, he was called Bacchus. The Egyptians thought that he was Osiris. The Mygians of Asia Minor named him Phanius, or Apollo. The Indians supposed that he was Dionysus. The sacred rites of the Romans called him Liber and the Arabians, Adonis. But the only thing that is of any interest to us in this connection is that Osiris was the hero of the earliest of the mysteries, and that his death and apotheosis, his change from a mortal king to an immortal god, were symbols setting forth the doctrine of a future life. His historical character was that of a mild and kindly ruler. He had introduced the arts of civilization among his subjects, and had then traveled for three years for the purpose of extending them into other nations leaving the government of his kingdom during his absence to his wife Isis. According to the legend, his brother Typhon had made a rival claim for the throne, and his defeat had given birth to a feeling of ill will. During the absence of Osiris, he, therefore, formed a secret agreement with some of his followers and friends to take the throne. On the return of Osiris from his travels, he was invited by Typhon to a banquet, apparently given in his honor, at which all the conspirators were present. During the feast, Typhon produced a chest inlaid with gold and promised to present it to that person of the company whose body upon trial would be found most nearly to fit it. Osiris tried the experiment, but as soon as he had laid himself in the chest, Typhon closed it and nailed down the lid. The chest was then thrown into the river Nile and it floated into the sea. After being for some time tossed upon the waves, the chest was cast ashore at the town of Byblos in Phoenicia and left at the foot of a tamarisk tree. Isis, the wife of Osiris, overcome with grief for the loss of her husband, began a search for the body, being accompanied by her son Anubis and his nurse, Nepth. After many adventures, Isis arrived on the shores of Phoenicia and in the neighborhood of Byblos, where she at length found the body at the foot of a tamarisk tree. She returned with it to Egypt. The body was received by the people with great joy, and it was proclaimed that Osiris had risen from the dead and had become a god. The sufferings of Osiris, his death, his resurrection, and his later office as judge of the dead in a future state formed the foundation principles of the Egyptian religion. They taught the secret doctrine of a future life. Initiation into the mysteries of Osiris was initiation into the rites of the religion of Egypt. These rites were conducted by the priests, and into them many sages from other countries, especially from Greece, such as Herodotus, Plutarch, and Pythagoras, were initiated. Thus it is supposed that the principles and general form of the mysteries were conveyed into other countries, although they everywhere varied in the details. The most important of the mysteries, besides the Egyptian, were those of Mithras in Persia, or Attis, or of the Kibiri in Thrace, of Adonis in Syria, and of Dionysus in Greece. They extended even beyond the then more civilized parts of the world into the northern regions of Europe, where were practiced the Scandinavian rites of the Norsemen and the Druidical mysteries of Gaul and Britain. 
though these were probably more directly derived from a very early Aryan source. Wherever they existed, we find in them a remarkable unity of design and a similarity of ceremonies from which we are compelled to believe they had a common origin. We must also believe that the purity of the doctrines which they taught proves that this common origin cannot be found in the popular religion of that time. In all of the mysteries, the ceremonies of initiation were of a funereal type. They allegorized in a dramatic form the sufferings, the death, and the resurrection of some god or hero. There was a death, most generally by violence, to symbolize, as certain interpreters of the mysteries have supposed, the strife of certain opposing powers in nature, such as life and death, virtue and vice, light and darkness, or summer and winter. The person thus slain was represented in the allegorical drama by the candidate. After his death, the body was lost. This disappearance was called by the Greeks the aphonism. There then came a search for the body. This sad search, in which all the initiates joined, formed what Faber calls the doleful part, and was followed by its discovery, which was known as the heresis. This was done with the greatest show of joy. The candidate was afterward instructed in the aparhida, or secret dogmas of the mysteries. In all of the pagan mysteries, this dramatic form of an allegory was preserved. We may readily see in the groans and lamentations on the death of the god or hero and the disappearance of the body a symbol of the death of man, just as we also see in the later rejoicings at his discovery and restoration a symbol of the restoration of the spirit to eternal life. Because of the purity of the lessons taught in the mysteries and their regard for the elevated dogmas of the unity of God and the immortality of the soul, it is not surprising to read the praises passed upon them by the philosophers of old. And at this point, I'm going to stop the chapter because we're coming up on half an hour already and there's still quite a bit left. So we're going to call it quits for this round and then pick up the rest of the chapter on Freemasonry and the Ancient Mysteries next week. Thanks for listening as always. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.